Hello and welcome to the High Biz Podcast brought to you by Hybrid Legal. Thanks ever so much for listening. And uh, today we've got another working from home special. We are here at Alan Reed's house uh, in his fantastic glass room. Alan, good morning. How are you, sir? Good morning. I'm very well. Thank you for coming over, Matt. Most appreciated. You are most welcome. What a delightful day. The sun is shining. And of course, we are joined by another special guest. Would you like to tell us a little bit about uh, this wonderful chap who's joining us for today's podcast? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, we're joined today by Jim Culverwell. Um, I've known uh, Jim for probably about five years now. Jim is a commercial property advisor and um, he's our special guest on today's podcast. So welcome, Jim. Thank you, Alan. Thank you. Good to be here. And Matt, thank you. You're welcome, Jim. Good morning. And uh, is Jim's um, job title an indication of what this episode is all about? Yeah, absolutely. So um, we thought it would be great for our listeners to hear um, some thoughts from Jim around what's happening in the uh, commercial property market at the moment. And hopefully he can impart some uh, some advice or some thoughts around what many employers might be considering when it comes to thinking about their own um, offices or workspaces uh, and what the future looks like, particularly in these very uncertain and unusual times we find ourselves in. Fantastic. So how do you want this to go then, Alan? Is it going to be a sort of quick fire questions to Jim? Yeah, I think so. Well, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see how we go. We'll keep it sort of uh, flowing and, and conversational. Um, but yeah, we'll ask Jim some questions and um, I'm sure we'll, we'll get into it and, and there'll be some useful stuff that comes out. So um, <laughs> shall, we, uh, shall we start? Over to you, Mr. Reid. Thank you, Matt. So welcome, Jim, again. Uh, great, great to have you here. So um. Probably a, a, a good starting point would maybe be to ask you, what what sort of things are, are you seeing in the marketplace when it comes to commercial property at the moment, in, you know, in, in light of um, coronavirus and, and lockdown, etc.? So what, what's, what's going on out there? It's quite a subjective question <laughs> because every situation is unique. But I think for in terms of broad principles, the industrial market is much less affected by corona because if you think about it if you're manufacturing something you can't do that from home mm. whereas office office operations office workers office business is much more flexible and the extent to which covid has affected businesses i think has been influenced mostly by the leaders mm. so if the leaders of business say, yes, you can all work from home, here is the resource for you to be able to do that, and that's a really important thing, resourcing home workers, um, then I think it's been very successful. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's very much about attitude of mind of the leaders. And I've been advising a company along the South Coast, uh, I had a meeting recently with them, and it was very clear that the finance director took one view about his staff working from home, the operations director took an entirely different view, mm. and I was lucky enough to have them both in the same room, um, having a very, what's the word, frank and open discussion about the rights and wrongs and merits of their teams working from home going forward, post-COVID, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, I've listened to a lot of conversations and had a lot of conversations with all sorts of different business streams, and 
as I say, it does come down to an individual attitude. I had a very interesting experience probably nearly 10 years ago, I would guess. I went to a seminar at the Rose Bowl and there were managers there from BT and BT at that time were resourcing their managers to work from home, giving them the right IT, the right um, desk office equipment and it was very successfully working for them so that they didn't need to have great big offices. And I don't know if you remember, um, probably about that time, there were some big BT offices in cities across the, the country. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Becoming vacant. Mm. And uh, uh, you know, those two things are connected. And so, if you like, working from home isn't new. And I'm a witness to that because I've been work running my business from home for just about 25 years. Um, and... So the resourcing thing is very important. Mm. It's interesting. Uh, there's there's quite a lot of debate, isn't there, about the benefits or the merits of working from home. And and I think, you know, a few weeks into lockdown, a lot of um, companies were saying, well, we can make the transition to, or we've made the transition to working from home and it's working really well. Um, you know, our, our, our teams are happy. We're using Zoom effectively. We're managing to have client meetings you know, over over Zoom or over the phone, et cetera, et cetera. And I must admit, hybrid legal have found it a fairly easy transition working from home. Well, you've been halfway there, haven't you? Well, that, 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 that's true, actually, yeah. Our, our model lends itself to, to that, absolutely. But I do feel there's, there's, a, there's something coming back the other way now a little bit, and, and people are realising that not being together on a regular basis does potentially have some impact on collaboration across a business or creativity etc and I, I don't know if you've got some thoughts on that or you've seen that as well yeah I think things like that are never black and white are they um, and, and very few people can survive working from home all day every day week after week for myself I always make sure that I have as few days at my desk dawn till dusk as possible so I'll always get out in order to break up the day. Um, and, and I think that's the same with larger businesses. And you're absolutely right. Face-to-face -face communication, because we were talking about this earlier, Matt, face-to-face -face communication is really important. But there's a happy medium between, okay, shut the office up, everybody goes and works from home, and, okay, guys, all back in, want you there five days a week. And... The real challenge for businesses is to find out where that happy medium is. So where on that continuum works for the business. So do the leaders need to be in every day? Could they be in three days a week? Do the accounts team need to be in every day? Could they be in, in two days a week? Do the marketing and sales people need to be in every day? So looking at each section and literally going through and saying who needs to be in and when and actually who needs to meet as well, then you start to get some sort of a, an idea of day by day how many desks you need. And if you're a, let's say you're a headcount of 80, and you find that in reality, nobody, you never need more than 50 people in a day, all of a sudden you've got 33 desks, and then you've got to decide what to do with them. Mm. It's not an overnight thing. And with all these sorts of things, you need to suck it and see, see how it works. Maybe you find that three months down the line or six months down the line, actually 
you've still got 10 people who are coming in each day that don't need to, uh, and 40 is fine. So you've su- suddenly cut your desk requirement by 50%, mm-hmm. which is a, a significant impact on your bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking that's a really practical way of assessing how much space, you know, as a business owner, you actually need, almost looking at it on a divisional basis. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And funnily enough, Jim and I were having a conversation a couple of weeks ago where I was just sharing what some of hybrid legal slots are. And, um, you know, we haven't landed on any definite decision yet uh, about what we're going to do. But... um, Let's just say that we decided that we were going to say to our team, all of you can come in one day a week, um, or we will all come in one day a week, rather, because we'll have one day a week where we're together in the office. And then um, two days a week, uh, any member of the team can choose uh, if they want to be in the office for uh, those two particular days, which days are, are up to them. And then two days, or even it might be three days, they can choose to work from home. Now, as I say, we haven't decided on anything, but if we did go down that route, um, it would it would certainly have an implication about our future space planning, if not affecting what we have right here and now. And I, I, I do wonder if uh, you've seen this, Jim, that um, companies are beginning to really sort of think through what... What does the future look like in terms of our our space requirements? And are they actually starting to make those decisions? I think the forward-thinking businesses have already done that. Mm. And and yours is a case in point, because you don't have every member of staff in every day, do you? No. Um, But I think the lucky companies are the ones who haven't got a property decision to take imminently, that they have got the time to test and measure and change, test and measure and change until they get that right recipe. And the other thing to say is that if you do have a day or an occasion where you all need to be in, the 80 people that we were talking about a minute ago, there are plenty of hotels, conference centres, with capacity, with technology to resource that so that you don't need to have that big space mm-hmm. for all those 80 people and you can genuinely cut your property overhead. Yeah. What about the sort of flexible working spaces, some of which are are, are arising. So um, let me think of some examples. So you've got things like uh, Inkyhive, who've got a number of sites across Hampshire now. In London, you've got places like WeWork. Um, Spaces. You you have office sort of or member clubs. So the old Bond store, for example, has opened up in, in Southampton, an interesting model. Do you think we'll see a growing number of sort of truly flexible kind of workspaces where you can almost hire meeting rooms by the hour, uh, if you like, without any kind of long-term commitment. So I think you've always been able to hire meeting space by the hour. And the original workspace, flexible workspace buildings from 10, 20 years ago were much more flexible than the ones are today. Some of the conversations I've been having with small businesses who found themselves locked out of the Regis or the WeWork have come to me and said, what we've discovered actually is that we do work perfectly well from home mm. and they're not going to renew. But interestingly, what they find is that they're actually locked in 
instead of it being easy come, easy go, which was the, the sort of watchword, the phrase behind that workspace, I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago, and they've got the thick end of two years that they're tied in, which seems to me anachronistic. But that's not flexible, and that's not easy come, easy go. Well, it is flexible to the extent that because they're under a license, their licensors, or let's call them landlords, are able to move them about the building. So they don't have security of tenure, they don't have exclusive possession of any area. Mm. Um, but in flexible in terms of easy come, easy go for them, not so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think maybe if small business owners will demand flexibility and keep it to a month, month by month thing, then when their circumstances change and they need to pivot, then they aren't locked into something unreasonable. Mm-hmm. I think there's, there was, has been a realisation. Because what landlords, what building owners are looking for is continuity of income, which if all of your occupiers are month to month, then that's fairly uncertain. And p- perhaps it comes p- back from the lenders because lenders like certainty of income. And they, they, they much prefer long commitments from occupiers. Whereas if it's month to month, it's more seat of your pants stuff, which obviously banks aren't great at. <laughs> yeah. So just, just on this point about companies thinking about what their future space requirements look like, what what would you be saying to, 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 to companies? What should they be doing now? What should they be considering and thinking about? Well, it sounds an obvious thing to say, but actually people don't do it. And it's ask the question, what does the business need? And the, the entity to ask is your business plan. So you go to your business plan and say, what do we need across the board? So what do we need in terms of human resources? What do we need in terms of space? What do we need in terms of the nature of the building, i.e., are we customer-facing? Do we have the general public coming and going? Or do we have articulated lorries coming and going? Ask all of those questions to define the container that you're going to put your business in. And if you define the container that you're going to put your business in to the nth degree, what you'll come up with fairly axiomatically is the ideal building. And then you work backwards from that within the stock of property that's available Mm. to the closest match. So that may not have been the, the answer to the question that you were looking for, but people tend to be driven by availability in terms of looking for the right kind of space. Instead of deciding what we need, they'll go out and search. If you go and search for property, you will find it. Is it what the business needs? Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like an analogy that I use is hiring a member of staff. If you look at taking on a premises as you would hiring a member of staff, the first thing you do if you're going to take on a new member of staff would be to write a job spec. Mm-hmm. What do we want this person to do, be, look like, be capable of, be interested in? What sort of cost of hiring them is there going to be? And if you apply those things to your property, before you ever get up and look, then you're more likely to get the right thing. So if you said to me, Jim, we need a- another member of staff, and I get up from my desk, I go downstairs, grab the first person I see from the high street, 
pull them in and sit them down at a desk and say, you now work for me, the chances of that being right, the right person, the right fit for the business is pretty remote. But if you said to me, Jim, we need another office, and I do the same thing, you'd be less surprised. Go out to the street, I see a signboard, I ring the number on the signboard, all of a sudden I've got a meeting to look at this nice shiny new space with a lovely carpet and clean windows, hopefully. That's what a lot of people do. So the stage that's been missed out in both those instances is write the job spec for the person and for the property. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really, really good point because, you know, as people say in business, that the two most expensive things are are people and buildings, aren't they? Um, Usually. And, you know, I think we've probably been guilty in the past when we have considered where we might want to be as, you know, we know that there's been an office block that's perhaps been refurbished um, we don't know anything else about it, but we've gone along because it kind of looks nice from the outside and, oh, wouldn't it be quite good to work there? But the reality is what we haven't done, although we are thinking about it very much now and, and encouraged by you is, well, specifically, what sort of size of space do we need for how many desks? Does it need to have air conditioning? Yes. Does it need to have a kitchen facility? Yes. Would it be good if it had a meeting room that we could use flexibly? We need four parking spaces and we need it in this geographical area. And, and you you know, you know, start to build quite a, a defined idea of what you're looking for. Would it be good if it had a really nice shower as well? It would be good if it had a really <laughs> nice shower. And, and uh, that isn't a weird uh, comment. That's a reference to um, uh, me talking about um, biking in from my house into work and um, where we currently are, the showers are not fantastic. So, uh, yeah, that's a good point. Given what the Southampton City Council have just done to the... Um, the avenue and the route into work, then that may be a more important thing for many people to consider. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, we were talking about that. So, um, yes, what they have done, not that good if you're a motorist. Um, very good if you're a, a cyclist, as I found out uh, yesterday going to and from the city centre. <laughs> um, so, sorry, Matt. I was on. just going to say, as much as I love talking about cycling, which is a passion of mine, I just want to... I just, <laughs> Yeah. I just want to pivot things ever so slightly, Jim, because um, there are probably instances where you've got businesses that are perhaps in a commercial lease. They might not necessarily be in the type of thing that you explained earlier, which is the sort of shared working environment, but perhaps they've got a building and they're thinking, actually, we need to downsize. What should they be? What should they be doing, you know? In the sh- in the short term, if they're looking to potentially get out of a lease, for instance, you know, what would you what would you do in that scenario? Well, without trying to sound facetious, the first thing you need to do is find your lease. Which, yeah, <laughs> buried in I a ask, filing cabinet somewhere. I ask a lot of people, "Do you know where your lease is?" And I very often get a, a straight answer to that because it isn't something that people. It, it's not their day job, but to answer your question. The solution is in the lease. Your options are in the lease. And they may be, so starting with the most extreme, if if you no longer think your property is fit for your business, you go to your landlord and you say, I want to bring this lease to an end. That's called a surrender, but it will be very expensive. The upside is it solves the problem straight away. Next sort of less... um, expensive, if you like, solution, Armageddon, would be if you've got a break clause. Uh, Lots of people have a break clause in their lease. Some people don't know why, but it's there. Um, But a lot of people also don't know what the conditions and constraints on operating it are. And so the sooner you 
dig your lease out, find that you've got a break clause and start working towards being able to exercise that break clause successfully, the better. Because, take it from me, there are lots of tips and traps in the process of exercising a break clause that won't be immediately apparent. Like, for example, serving notice in the right format. I won't go into the detail of that, but that's what a lot of people fall down on before you've even got to the break date. If you haven't got a break clause and you don't want to pay your way out of your lease, you've got a thing called alienation in your lease, probably, which is, again, why you need to look and check. Alienation is a technical term for assigning the lease or subletting. Now, most people understand the term subletting. You find another occupier, you grant them a lease, you remain the tenant under the main lease, and you receive rent from your subtenant and you pay rent to your landlord. That's fairly straightforward. Assignment is, in many ways, slightly a better solution, slightly more difficult to understand, which is that you step away from the lease one step, you find a replacement who steps into your shoes as the tenant. So that new person has a direct relationship with the landlord. The deed of assignment defines that, and it defines the fact that you step. And the reason that I say you step one step away is that in most instances, you become effectively a guarantee of the new tenant in his relationship with the landlord. That's called an authorised guarantee agreement. And if that person that, that you found to replace you finds another person to replace them, then you walk away completely in most cases. But come back to the original point is that the answer to your question is in your lease. Step one. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's really interesting because there's a couple of points there that, like you say, um, there might be quite a few business owners out there that necessarily haven't looked at those individual clauses. Like you say, it's not their it's not their day job. Mm. No, and the inevitability is that when people are taking on a lease, it's not the thing they're doing. What they're doing is they're getting new space for their business, and what they want above anything else is to get into that space start running their business to create the growth to make the success in their business that they really really want so the lease is at best an irritation and at worst something ruder so that their focus and concentration and energy is never on that at the time when it's really crucial what about jim sort of outside of the the lease if you like or the legal obligations the contractual obligations um, within the lease what about conversations with um, landlords uh, uh, around what's going on in the business and some of the pressures that may be on that business particularly at the current time do you think there's scope to have those sensible commercial conversations with landlords are they receptive and how would you know our clients or small business owners how do they go about having that conversation you know it's a really, really difficult question to generalise about in terms of an answer mm. because every situation is unique. The spectrum of landlord types goes from a small business owner who's bought a building that's bigger than their business needs and they want to let the upstairs or perhaps they want to let the ground, st ground floor. That's one type of landlord. At the other extreme, you've got the massive property companies, hedge funds with asset managers, billion pound portfolios 
uh, the attitude that you're going to get from those two people to a request for some leniency, some flexibility, some forbearance on the lease that has been agreed is going to be huge. But the one thing that you need to do is try. If you don't try, you won't even get the answer no. Mm. But I would counsel that you don't ring up or fling an email in saying, what can you do for me? Because I think from from all landlords, you'll get a shrug and a no. Mm -hmm. But if you can make a compelling case for some change, and if you can back that up with hard facts and figures, and if the landlord believes that without some intervention by him, things are going to get worse for him. He's actually going to lose out. Mm -hmm. And therefore, in the proposal, if the offering from the tenant, if you like, includes an upside for the landlord, whatever that upside might be, then I think you're going to get the ear of whomever it is you're talking to, whether it be the small business owner with the floor to let upstairs or the massive property company. Mm. But I think that that's an important part. And where we are in the changing economic cycle, it's worth saying that a lot of landlords are quite slow to recognise a change in circumstances mm -hmm. and thereby the fact that they need to respond, react and show some forbearance that we were talking about earlier. So there's a, there's a bit of denial going on at the moment and some landlords are completely intransigent in terms of f increased flexibility, but others are starting to come to heel and say, yes, you know, what do you need, how can I help? And a lot of that, I think, is driven by their own circumstances. On the one hand, it's ab about the type of landlord that they are, that we were talking about earlier, but also... If you turn a landlord round, as I always say, he's a borrower when he's facing his lender. Mm. So if he's an investor, he will have borrowed money, probably. And the pressure, the relationship that he has with his lender, the pressure that he might or might not be under from his lender, is going to influence his attitude to his tenants. Mm. Now that might sound like a, a slightly vague comment, but that comes from my own experience of advising and acting for lenders in the last two major recessions when I'm um, going into situations where there's a defaulting loan and I'm sitting in front of the, the borrower and the borrower is talking to me about his tenants, his portfolio, his vacancies and he's telling me why he can't pay his mortgage mm. and the solutions as to why he can't pay his mortgage are often in his own hands in terms of the relationships he's having with his tenants and what he's doing about his vacant space. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that sits down and informs the conversations that I have with my clients today comes from the conversations back in the 2008-9-10 recession and the 1990s when I was doing this commercial debt resolution and having conversations with borrowers who were quite often at a loss as to what to do. Mm -hmm. So it's not necessarily the case as a tenant that you're going to your landlord who's this big, strong financial muscle man 
it may be that they're in a difficult situation. If they're not in a difficult situation now, my guess is that over the next six to nine months, their situation will deteriorate. And the extent to which that does happen may be in line with their ability to be flexible with you about the sort of terms that they're prepared to agree. Yeah. And that, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's a bit of a blind alley for you. Well, I, I think the point that I've taken from that is, you know, just be just be cognizant of the situation that your landlord's potentially in and, and ha- try and have an awareness of that. And that may influence how you approach the conversation. Um, One of the things which I talk about whenever I'm talking to a tenant, because I almost exclusively advise tenants, work out who your landlord is what they're going to be like and conduct your negotiation accordingly. Mm, mm. Yeah, no, that's really useful. So, Matt, I'm, I'm conscious of time. We've, we've covered quite a lot of ground there, um, you know, particularly around what's happening in the commercial property market, what businesses might want to be thinking about in terms of their future requirements for office space, and, and then also that whole piece around the conversations that tenants can potentially have with a landlord. Um, is there anything else from your perspective that we... We'd like to ask uh, of Jim. Well, I think yeah, I think I'd, I'll throw the the ball back into Jim's court. Okay. And uh, you know, Jim, have you got any sort of parting words of advice? What I'd like to do is just take the conversation slightly further, Alan. When you asked me about key points to think about, yeah. Um, and there are three others that I just I'll just touch on briefly. Okay. We talked about asking what the business needs. Another key point is to understand what your business horizon is. So how far can you look into the future and tell mm. me what your business is going to look like? Again, back to what your headcount's going to be, who are you going to be doing that work for, what resources, what suppliers you need uh, in order to be able to do that. Past that date, you can't tell me. And therefore, past that date, you can't say that the premises that you're going to be in will be fit for that business. So that informs, if you like, the length of lease that it's wise to acquire or the point at which you need to be looking for an opportunity to change. The second thing that I wanted to add is to be brave about what you agree in your lease. It's often easier to be cautious, to be hesitant, because it's unfamiliar ground. I often have people come to me saying, well, they want a break clause after a year or two years. And I'll always question that because a year into a new premises, when your business has been given some space to grow and develop, to have to decide whether it's right to leave that property or perhaps even more difficulty to stay in that property for the duration of the remainder of the lease, which might be a five-year term. Mm. I offer the idea that it's too early, too soon. Because that year goes in a flash. I don't know how long you've been down in Southampton in your office. but I'm get, I'm Six years. Yeah. I mean, that time's gone in no time, hasn't it? Absolutely. And so whilst I'm offering, on the one hand, the idea of what your business horizon is, don't be too hesitant or cautious because moving premises is expensive. And the last thing in the negotiation is to understand who's doing what. And this is one of the things which comes up time and time again. I have people to say to me, oh, my agent says this, my agent's doing that for me. And I'm asking them, well, who is your agent? Oh, it's the guy that I saw when I looked at the property. Well, hang on a second, that's actually the landlord's agent. Mm. And wouldn't you know 
The landlord is paying him. And what's he paying him for? He's paying him to do the best deal he can, bearing in mind that he's a property expert, he does this every day, and he wants the next instruction from the landlord. So the idea that he's going to do you any kind of favours... <laughs> wishful thinking. It might be wishful thinking, yes. Uh, the other thing to say about that is that neither the landlord nor the agent are going to tell you, the prospective tenant, anything about that property that might prejudice the outcome from them, for them. Because that's business. And so if you rely upon the landlord and the agent for your information in order to make your decisions, then you're only getting partial information. Those are my three things on top of the, the uh, understanding what the business needs that I wanted to add just for completeness. And I think we would recommend any anybody that's listening to this podcast is perhaps go through all of the um, pieces of advice, put them together. It's almost like a jigsaw, but I think review every part of you know the the tips and tricks that you've that you've given there, Jim, because un undoubtedly it's probably going to unearth um, perhaps some questions and probably some conversations to be had. I would have thought. Yeah, definitely. And you know, Jim, thank you very much. I think that's been really useful. Some key things have come out there. Um, I will say this because um, Jim's too modest too, but um, you know, as I say, I've known Jim for a number of years. He's helped uh, a number of our clients out and I can thoroughly recommend him and his services. And so if there's anybody out there that needs some specific help or support relating to commercial property um, around the areas that Jim's talked about, I'm sure he'd love to hear from you and we'll We'll perhaps put his email contact details alongside the uh, the podcast when we send it out, Matt. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Or just a conversation. Very happy to have a conversation. Super, okay. We, we couldn't ask for more. Gents, uh, Alan, thank you very much. Jim, thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. You're most welcome. So thank you very much for listening to this episode of the HiBiz podcast brought to you by Hybrid Legal. Don't forget to check out our other episodes that are available on uh, Apple Music and also Spotify. And if you get a moment, please, please, please leave us a review on uh, Apple because they make um, a massive difference. And stay tuned for some more episodes. Thanks very much. <laughs>